0: Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash happier. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash happier.
1: Hello, happier listeners. Recently, the terrific Kelly Corrigan and I had a conversation on her podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. You may know Kelly's work from her podcast or from her many New York Times bestselling books or from her PBS show, Tell Me More. I thought you might enjoy listening to the conversation, so I'm adding it here to the happier feed. If you're intrigued, you can listen to her podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, watch the TV show Tell Me More, read her books, such as her most recent book, the bestseller, Tell Me More, stories about the 12 hardest things I'm learning to say. Happy listening! I really thought, I'll come up with the most scientifically proven way to be happier. And what I realized is you can't do that. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to happiness because we're all so different.
2: Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about something that is talked about almost constantly, the pursuit of happiness. My thought partner is author and podcaster Gretchen Rubin, who 15 years ago wrote a book you may have read. It's called The Happiness Project. It detailed her year-long experiment to discover ways to create and sustain true happiness. In today's show, Gretchen will share thoughts and phrases from her work over the years, and I'll share some ideas from my book, Tell Me More. So join me for a conversation with the highly intentional Gretchen Rubin. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders.
0: Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome
2: back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. My guest today is author Gretchen Rubin. She's been on the show before, but we're having her back because she's currently celebrating the 15th anniversary of her book, The Happiness Project, which details a year in her life in which she very consciously sought out happiness and found some ideas for all of us. Here's my conversation with Gretchen Rubin. So... Here we are, Gretchen and Kelly, sharing some insights about relationships in honor of the 15th anniversary of the Happiness Project. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's hard to believe. So
2: of all the things that you brought up in that book, I think that probably the one I'm most interested in that most overlaps with everything I've been thinking about is relationships. So you and I both know that meaningful connection to others is the number one driver of human happiness across time, across culture. So Mm -hmm. let's talk deeply about what you had in mind going into the Happiness Project, what you surfaced during that year, and then how, if at all, anything has changed over these past 15 years. And then I'll feed in some ideas from uh, my book, Tell Me More.
1: Yes. Um, well, you're exactly right. And this was something that I didn't realize when I first started researching happiness, that ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that if you had to pick one thing, like what is the secret to happiness, um, it would be relationships because we're you know among the most social creatures on the planet. We need to have deep, intimate bonds. We need to be able to confide. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be able to get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And so anything that we do with our precious time, energy, or money that deepens our relationships or broadens our relationships— is likely to make us happier. So with my original happiness project, I did many things to deepen and broaden my relationships. And, you know, I'm redoing it now in the present. And again, I'm turning to relationships, though my relationships look different, of course.
2: Yeah. You know, when my dad died, I was writing his eulogy. And I thought, what is the thing that he gave me above all Mm -hmm. else? And it was that he taught me how to love and he taught me how to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it can be complicated to relax enough to let yourself be loved, or people have complicated ideas about how worthy they are of such a glorious thing. I wonder if over these 15 years, you've had any takeaways on that count because you're raising young people, and so you see them come into their own and sometimes that adolescent period is so rough that it leaves Mm -hmm. people in a sort of toughened, more defensive stance, Mm -hmm. and they don't have that softness, that porousness that allows them to love and be loved.
1: Well, on that front, one of the most helpful things that I ever learned came from a book that I love about parenting. It's about parenting like preschool-aged children, but actually the advice works just as well for like your mother-in-law. It's just universal good advice, Um, is how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. And one of the things they recommend is to acknowledge the reality of other people's feelings. And I realized that this was something that I really often did wrong. I would say things like, you're not hungry or you love a parade, or you always have fun at parties, or you know. <laughs> instead of really listening to what somebody was saying. and And that really served me well. As you say, the teenage years are difficult. And over and over, I would find myself trying to tell one of my daughters what they felt. Instead of saying, oh, you feel angry, frustrated, sad, worried, anxious you're really, really worried about that test, even though, you know, it doesn't really matter. You've studied hard, you, you know. And so for me, that was a way to reduce conflict because I realized that the way that I tend to incite conflict is trying to tell people what they think. I can be a little bit of a happiness bully sometimes too, <laughs> like rush in with solutions instead of just acknowledging the reality of other people's feelings. Because when people acknowledge how we feel, you might think it would make them, people feel worse, but in fact, it makes them feel understood. And even if you get it wrong, you're like, oh, no, let me explain to you. I'm not angry. I'm sad. And that's helpful. So that, that was one thing that I feel like I really learned over and over and over. You know, many lessons we have, you know, we just keep learning them over and over. It's well, definitely for one sure, of mine.
2: For sure <laughs> that like there's sort of 10 lessons to learn. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes you a lifetime to learn them. Yes, and they kind of exactly. shapeshift a little bit, and then you you yes. don't realize you're yes. learning the same lesson again. And then you're like, oh, yes. God, it's that same old thing about like yes. not telling people how they feel. Yes. yes. Yeah. In Tell Me More, the gist of the book is it's 12 sentences that I feel like yes. adults need to be able to say to one right. another to be in deep relationship. Exactly. And one of them is, I know. Yeah. Which is to say, like, I'm following you into your emotional space. Mm -hmm. If you tell me, and another one is tell me more. So- Well,
1: tell me more. That is sort of the universal thing to use if you're at a loss. Totally. You don't know what to say. Just say, tell me more. That that was one of the big takeaways I got from your book. Um, I love that structure, by the way, like as somebody who loves a framework and (laughs) like a list, I was like, oh my gosh, I am the perfect audience for this. But tell me more- If you have to stall, if you don't know what to say, tell me more works so often.
2: Yes, I mean, tell me more what else go on. Like you could Mm -hmm. live 90% of your conversations with the people you love the most when they're distressed. Mm -hmm. Could just be that. You could just keep digging deep, letting them dig deeper because, well, the truth is that people know more about their lives, their feelings, and their situation than you do. Yes. And you don't always remember that. Like there is this terrible arrogance or this leaping to identify that says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was in sixth grade, the same thing happened. And it's like, but they didn't even tell you really what happened yet. Like they told you like Mm -hmm. one sentence, like it's probably like nine sentences from now where they're going to tell you specifically why whatever happened today is really causing them so much pain. And if you jump to relate too fast, which I think can feel like a loving thing to do. It can feel like you're normalizing it. Yeah, and you're saying like, totally, I was there. I totally get it. And it's like, and there might be thinking like, no, you don't. Like, you don't get Mm -hmm. it. Because I haven't really even told you like the true, true version. Like I Mm -hmm. told you the version that I had the guts to tell you. But like, if Mm -hmm. I really told you what she said, and then if I really told you about the way the other people laughed, and if I really told you about the guy walking away then you would know. So tell me more is not only like a a great technique to stall, but it's also this incredibly intellectually humble position to take, which is I only know a fraction of what I would need to know in order to have an opinion at this time.
1: Well, also people will arrive at their own solutions. Like they're coming to you, like I have this problem, I have this conflict. And as they explain, I I saw this, I see this over and over with people that as they explain it, they talk themselves into the solution. But it takes patience. And this is the thing for me as a happiness bully. A lot of times I want to rush in and say, what about this? What about that? Let's set a deadline. And I think people know that it comes from a place of love. But so often... As people talk, they grope their way to their own solution, which, of course, is a thousand times better than any solution anyone else could come up with because they know. Just as you said, they know the circumstances. They know the situation.
2: Yeah, and it's so empowering. I mean, it's like every time you do that, every time you solve your own problem, every time you take the knots out of your own jewelry, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know that the next time things come up, you could sit with it there's two things that you're reminding me of. One is that like listening is so close to love that most people don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. And two is this whole project takes time. And mm-hmm. that really is the modern challenge is that when we get home from a day's work, if we even come home, but even if we've sort of returned to our our home space mentality from the other room where we worked all day. We don't stop. Like when my dad came home from work, there was, no one could possibly reach him. No one would have called our house and said, George, I really need some feedback on this, these numbers I sent you. You know, it was just everything stopped and there wasn't really that much to do and there wasn't really that much TV to watch and whatever. So then my mom was like, you can watch a half an hour of television a day, period, the end. So, that left hours and hours of people being able to sit around and have a long conversation and say, tell me more, what else go on? But if you're trying to like squeeze your life into these tiny nooks and crannies that are left behind after work stops pummeling you and after you put down your phone, there's no way that you're gonna be able to build the kind of relationship that would lead to the kind of meaningful connection that leads to the kind of happiness that you're always after.
1: Well, one way that I think about this is it's easier to change your surroundings and your schedule than it is to change yourself. And so when I felt the need for that kind of like really intimate open time with my daughters, one of the ways that I did it is on Wednesday afternoons, I would pick them up from school and we would go on an adventure and we would call it an adventure, but it wasn't like it was really adventurous. It was like, let's go to a museum or like... We would take turns choosing where we would go, um, and if you know if there were tickets to buy or something, I would buy them. But sometimes it was like we have this really great kind of stationary notion store. So, like, let's just go there and walk around for a while and see what's there. And it was because I, I thought, like, I want to have this time where we don't have to be anywhere. It's just the two of us. There's no distractions. There's no tasks to be done we're sort of dialing into each other's interests and preferences. Of course, what we did when they were, you know, 10 years old was very different from what we would do if they were like 16 years old. And because I was like let me open up a time for that instead of just trying to generally do it more in my day, let me like really create a place for that. And that worked really well for, yeah, that's for smart. Our, our schedule. It's easier to change your context than
2: it is to change yourself. That's like such a great takeaway. The other thing about that that works for me is that I feel like when I was with my kids under one roof, you know, I'm an empty nester now, I was often asking them too directly, like, how are you? And how are you really? Mm. Which, you know, becomes like kind of tedious after a while. And for sure, a teenager's like, I really don't want to like do therapy with you right now. Mm-hmm. And so I like the idea of sort of turning and being shoulder to shoulder looking at something else. Mm-hmm. Yes where it's not really we're not doing some deep dive into your feelings about yes 11th grade or how you're feeling about the college process or how you're feeling about your last lacrosse season. We're looking at something together and wondering about it. Like the turning towards the world and away from self, I think is a real happiness technique.
1: Well, I live in New York City, and so I, I'm not driving my kids around, which is a happiness booster. But one of the things that many parents of teenagers say is that is a great time to talk to your kids because, like, they know that the end is in sight. You're sort of isolated. You're not looking at each other, and that a lot of times that's when they get the confidences or you know things start coming out. But exactly, as you say, one of the things my daughters and I would often go to museums and we would just sort of amble around. It's not like we were carefully studying the art. It was more like we just need something to look at and to move along and we're on our feet and we're moving through space. And then we would stop and have a cup of coffee. It's a really good way to let things come out in a way that feels more natural than to like, yeah, like sit down and grill someone where a person might feel very much on the spot. I think this is true of, of of adults as well. There's something about walking and talking that's different from sitting across a table from someone or sitting. Oh, for you know.
2: sure. For sure. I mean, you might as well like add dopamine to the picture when possible. And so mm-hmm. if you're moving, like you're yeah. just gonna feel better. You're just gonna have a cheerier outlook. You're on a drip. Basically, you've like put an IV in your arm and it allows people to be a little more connected. And the, the other yeah. thing that you're saying, which is so great, is like kind of low stakes agenda time.
1: Yes, yes.
2: And that, they, they just could be a lot more of that in the world and a lot more of that between people. I mean, that's why, you know, I just moved after 29 years in California. We sold our house when Claire graduated and went to college And now we live in New York City and in Bozeman, Montana. And I I had to leave a lot of good friends. And I'm finding it really hard to stay deeply connected to them because when you make a phone call, it's kind of like the clock is ticking and there Mm -hmm. is a little bit of an agenda. Like you can't just be together in the same space. Mm -hmm. So I was just in California Mm -hmm. and I was hanging out with my old pals, Betsy and Beth. And we... We're in the kitchen and we were doing dishes and we played some backgammon and we sat on a sofa and we watched lightly some NFL and chit-chatted and it was like, oh, this is why face-to-face is so important because there's no rush to like clip through your list of updates for one another, Mm -hmm. which can make it
1: so superficial and dull. When I was in high school, we would go on, we would do errands together. It'd be like, Oh, I have yes. to run a bunch of errands for my parents. Do you want to come? And you'd be like, Yeah, I'll come run errands with you. And you just hang out and somebody else is going to the hardware store. And like, I love, I miss that kind of time, just kind of like hanging out, you know? Yeah. Um, because we're all sort of charging through our to-do list. Yeah. Um, Well, I love doing a walk and talk where because I feel like that kind of captures that aimless feeling. It's like I'll just, especially for like, I have a friend who lives in London. So the time change is really hard, but uh, we'll set a time and then I'll be walking around Central Park and she'll be doing whatever she's doing and we'll just kind of talk about whatever. So there's sort of no agenda. It's not like, oh, I'm calling to hear how XYZ went. It's just like, I'm just checking in. Yeah. Um, But you're right. It's not the same thing. I mean, this is the great challenge of our age, of course, which is how do we adjust to a world where many things happen virtually, where we just took for granted that things like work would, for the most part, happen face to face, and now we're struggling to understand how do you manage relationships when often you aren't face to face and of course there's a huge boon to this but it's kind of a whole new challenge coming up
2: next Gretchen explains her four tendencies framework and I explain the importance of learning to say the word and the sentence no we'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders
0: Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. Gretch, I know from my own experience that baby making is not always simple. There is a lack of knowledge surrounding how to get pregnant. And when you want to conceive, there can be a lack of understanding and resources. Frida Fertility is the only one-stop shop that makes it easier to make a baby with a set of solutions for everything from reproductive health to uh, ovulation tracking to conception aid. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback.
1: Well, I know with Eleanor, when she was struggling so much with math, if she had been able to do online learning at home, she would have been much better able to keep up with the class, and that would have just made the whole situation much easier for her.
2: Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Before we get back to my interview with Gretchen Rubin, I want to welcome you to reach out anytime with feedback or questions. Our email address is hello at kellycorrigan.com. I also want to mention that at the end of every show, we share our takeaways, and then in the middle of every week, we send out our top three takeaways to thousands upon thousands of listeners. If you'd like to be one of them, just send us an email hello at kellycorrigan.com. Okay, let's jump back to my conversation with author, podcaster, and happiness expert, Gretchen Rubin. Another one of the 12 sentences from Tell Me More that you really have to be able to say to be an adult in the world, in relationship, is no. And Mm -hmm. I feel like part of what you're talking about with landing some of these big ideas into like a schedule or a to-do list or a to-da list, as you say, is to kind of operationalize your values. So it's like, if you're going to spend some time knowing yourself and asking yourself the hard questions, what makes you feel guilty? What makes you feel joy? If you're going to kind of like have a running inventory of your moods and then take the time to trace them back and figure out, oh, why am I in such a good Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know why I'm such a good mood. I talked to Tammy this morning. It was so funny. I made such a big laugh. And then it's like, well, great. Well, maybe I should schedule more time talking to Tammy. And mm-hmm. that means that you're going to have to say no to all kinds of things. And I think that saying no typically gets easier with age. And so I wondered if in the 15 years since the Happiness Project came out, if you have gotten better at saying no to preserve time for the things Mm. that you know drive your happiness?
1: Well, one of the biggest insights that I got in the interval between when I first wrote The Happiness Project is when I was writing my book Better Than Before, which is all about habit change, I got this insight about personality differences, which turned into my framework called The Four Tendencies, which divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And whether you're an upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel is very relevant to how easy do you find it to say no to other people's demands. And, it, and you know, when I wrote The Happiness Project, you know, or just in my life, I had no idea what this framework was or, or what my category was until I created it. But what I learned about myself is that I am an upholder, which is a very small group of people, and upholders find it very easy to stick to their own expectations for themselves or to stick to outer expectations. And so they find it relatively easy to say no when something interferes with that. This can make them seem very cold because sometimes it's, you know, Kelly, you're like, hey, um, can you proofread my my report? Because both of our reports are due tomorrow. And I would say, Kelly, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help you because my report's due tomorrow too and I need to work on my report. And some people are like, whoa, that's cold. But to an upholder, that seems appropriate. So upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels all have their own strengths and weaknesses, and they all have their own ways of saying no. I
2: mean, I assume no. obligers find it torturous to say no.
1: Yes, you got it. So you know the framework. Yes, obligers. If you have trouble saying no, it's very likely that you are an obliger, or you might be a questioner who has a very high value of, uh, of like being considerate for other people. That's pretty rare. If you really say to yourself, wow, I really have trouble saying no, if you say, "Why do I keep my promises to other people, but I can't keep my promises to myself that then that's an obliger, which is the biggest group of people for both men and women, like you probably are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life, but that's one thing I found out about myself is that isn't one of my challenges for the most part. Mhm, you know another
2: thing from Tommy Moore that's so aligned with what you've talked about is knowing when to say good enough.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, as Voltaire says. Yeah,
2: Voltaire yes. really nailed it, actually. Yeah. You know, Classic. and whenever you come across, whenever you come <laughs> yes. across one of those lines, with this is just so efficiently stated, Yeah. you think, oh my God, there's like five things happening and we just keep rediscovering them. Culture by culture, exactly. author by author, oh. think book by think oh. book. Yes. How does that yeah. play out for you?
1: Knowing when to say I am not going to keep laboring over something. I mean, what's that cliche when people say you're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Uh-huh. Um, or for writers, when you start messing around with your, kind of your, your headers, <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, this is not moving the ball forward. A
2: thing I've thought about a lot as my parents get older. My father died and my mom's 84. She's living in the house I grew up in and really doing so well. But when I go there, as I'm taking the train down from New York, I'm switching my insides to orient around like, what is the point of going here? The point is not to find food satisfaction. It's not to have a good night's sleep. It's not to have fresh conversations that I've never had before. I'm going there to be with her in the way that she likes to be. So I'm serving her. And when I know that, then I know how to get to good enough. But sometimes you forget like exactly what you're doing, which also makes clear what you're not doing. You know, like I'm not going to Philadelphia to catch up with 29 people and try the latest restaurant and go see a movie in the old movie theater from my childhood and get some exercise in. I'm going to Philadelphia to sit in my house on Wooded Lane with my mom in front of the fire and talk about Wordle. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. And I know why I'm doing it because I love her and it feels good for her. And so it feels good for me. But if I don't take that moment on the train to like remember, here's what we're doing. Don't try to squeeze in a lot of stuff. Don't try to layer it up with like catching up with so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Like just keep your schedule aligned to your purpose. Mm-hmm. And it will, and you'll get to leave with the satisfaction that connection can offer.
1: You know, I think this is like the flip side of something that I think about a lot, which is identify the problem. So you're saying identify the value so that you don't get overwhelmed with all of these competing values where you couldn't possibly satisfy all of them because they're in competition in a way. Like if I see my friends, I'm not spending the time with my mother and seeing my mother is what I really want to do. The kind of the flip side of this is when people feel overwhelmed by something like burnout. And yet they don't exactly know why they're burned out. So that people will say, I'm burned out, I'm burned out. It's like, well, are you burned out because you stay up really late every night, binge watching your favorite TV show? Are you burned out because half your department got fired and now you're doing the work of three people? Are you feeling burned out because you haven't been exercising or meditating or whatever it is that makes you feel like you're staying on track? There are many, many, many completely understandable reasons that a person might feel burned out. But if you don't identify the problem, you sort of feel like you have to fix everything in your life. Or you might work really hard to fix something that's not actually what's causing the problem. Um, if you're feeling burned out because you're having a really tricky relationship with your boss, going to bed a half an hour earlier is probably <laughs> might not be a bad idea, but it might not address the problem. But strangely, it's really easy not to identify the problem. Just the way you're saying, it's very easy not to really hone in on what is my real reason for doing what I'm doing. And so we feel very overwhelmed by possibilities of like things that it could be or might be or that we could be doing or that we should be working on. Um, And I think that you're exactly right. When we really pinpoint what it is that we are trying to achieve or what is stopping us, from whatever the happiness stumbling block is, then it's a lot easier to see how actions follow.
2: So the two ways to do that that I know of, and I wonder if you have more, is journaling, where you're really Mm. asking yourself, tell me more, what else? Go on, Kelly. What is actually bothering you? And trying to zero in, as you say, so that you're not in that terrible kitchen sink scenario where you're like, and then, and this, and also... Yeah, You know, that it like kind of helps you like separate and admit like what is really, (laughs) really, really the problem. Because the thing I noticed with my kids over the years is that they're very attuned, of course, to what our values are, which means that when they tell you what's wrong, they might be adapting it to fit a category that you have validated over time. So- What do you mean? Like instead of saying my- feelings are hurt because there's some party that I didn't get invited to, which they think that that we might say, oh, there's always parties. You're going to get invited to some and not invited to others. And we're going to like kind of hand wave it. They Acknowledge might, the reality of
1: other people's feelings. Yeah,
2: exactly. They might give you something, like if you say, what's bothering you? They might give you something that is more um, unassailable. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, they might be like, I'm just feeling like under so much pressure with my AP courses. And Mm -hmm. something that we have over the years indicated that we think would be a perfectly reasonable Mm -hmm. cause of distress.
1: What was the second one? You said there were two ways, journaling and what was the other one?
2: Friendship, like great friendship. Like, you know, if if you're walking and talking with somebody Ah, and they're good at it and they can tell me more you, like if they give you tell me more, what else go on and and give you time to get to the actual bottom, Mm -hmm. then you would find out, oh, this is actually what I care about. This is actually what's driving me bananas. And all the rest of it is fine. I can let go of all of it.
1: Uh, I agree with both of those. One that I like to do is to answer know-yourself-better questions. And I have just this gigantic collection of questions because I think for some people, just sitting down and writing in a journal can feel intimidating or kind of unstructured. And so having a question can sometimes really highlight things that maybe you hadn't considered or maybe that you don't wanna acknowledge to yourself. So some questions I think that are really useful in this area are, whom do you envy? Because we often don't wanna admit that we envy somebody. It's a very kind of unattractive emotion, but it's a very useful emotion because when you envy somebody, they have something that you want. Mm -hmm. And so if you envy somebody because they're going on all these great trips, then it's like, okay, well, maybe you want to travel, but you haven't even acknowledged that to yourself. Or like you envy somebody who's doing a lot of public speaking and maybe you have an unacknowledged desire to like grab the mic yourself. Another one is what do you lie about? Mm. Because when we lie about something, it's often because our life doesn't reflect our values, right? Because if it, if it reflected your values, you would just be honest. But if, it, if you're lying, it's because in some way you wish that the truth were different. So like a friend of mine said that, she, her pediatrician said, how much TV would you say your kids watch each day? And she just lied. Mm-hmm. it's like, another parent could be like, oh, this is fine. Three hours of TV is fine. But if you're lying about it, it's because you wish the truth were different. Your life doesn't reflect your values. So often I think a good, know yourself better question can kind of throw yourself into an unexpected light. Because you think, you know, Of course, we know ourselves. We just hang out with ourselves all day long, but it's so hard to know ourselves and to identify the problem and to sort of understand the roots of what's going on that I think sometimes having a a very pointed question, and sometimes it's a happy question, like what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? That's probably something that you're going to enjoy as an adult. That's like A lot of adults think, I don't even know how to have fun. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, the truth is that like we have to work to reveal ourselves even to ourselves which might make journaling the better avenue because you can be a little more honest and you might be embarrassed to reveal to your friend that like I'm kind of jealous of yes yes so and so for such and such yeah and like the thing you might be jealous of seems really vain and, you know, of course, there's a relationship between journaling and conversation. Like you say it in a journal, you've just taken a step to saying it to another person, which will lead you to the meaningful connection that will be the number one driver of your happiness for the rest of your life. Is I feel like there is this little hop, skip and a jump between a thought and then language and then action.
1: It is so striking to me how often something that just feels like the biggest, darkest secret that other people are just like, that's really not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, or like, that's okay. Or we've <laughs> all done it. And that to me is a great, is a great response. Is like, we've all been there. Yeah. We've all done it. Yeah. And yeah, it's so freeing to put it out in the open air and just feel like, okay, this isn't going to alienate everybody in my life from me if they know this truth or they know that I have this thought or I screwed this up.
2: Yeah, and I think it goes for really deep, hard stuff. I mean, I've been in some very small circles where people admit something like sobbing that they're so ashamed of that is something that society has deemed shameful and wrong. And then someone else in the tiny circle of five is like, that happened to me too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you can't get that unless you spit it out. You can never get that moment unless you spit it out, you know?
1: Yeah, and then you're right. Maybe that's why the journal like, is the important first step because by, just by articulating it in words, even if you're you're confiding it to the page, which may be to yourself, you know, you may be locking your journal up and putting it in a lockbox, but there is an implied audience. And just by articulating something, it often becomes more understandable, not so looming.
2: Yeah, and it's almost like practicing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a pre-communication. I mean, you're, you're not only like revealing yourself to yourself and like getting way more clarity, a f- much finer understanding of what makes you tick such that you can like plan a different kind of day. Like I, I, one of the things that I watched uh, my older kid, Georgia, like really figure out, and it was so cool to see it, was what does she need in a day for it to be great? How much activity? How much downtime? How much outside time? How much inside time? How much movement? You know, like she really refined her day as she learned. And that helps you um, admit things to yourself. Like a thing that I have really come to admit to myself is that I like a lot of plates in the air. I'm the Mm. person who likes to put another spinning plate on top of a pile of spinning plates. Instead of kind of picking up on what other people are giving me. So like an example is my mom feels so sorry for me that I travel so much. And she just can't imagine that that's not brutal for me. And I often say to her, like, I actually like it. Like I like being on a plane because I never go on Wi-Fi. So it's just total downtime. And I get a completely different kind of thinking done and I, I clear things out of my mind. I can make a ton of hard decisions on a plane. And I love being somewhere because I never stay in a hotel, which makes me sort of sad and depressed. I always stay with friends. And I love being in someone else's house. I love seeing their dog. I like seeing how they do their coffee. I like overhearing their family in conversation. I like walking their neighborhoods with them. You know, like I like being immersed in somebody else's world. I find it like helps me observe more closely how people are doing their lives in a way that I find both kind of fascinating and also instructive. And so instead of accepting the pity that people are offering me for traveling so much, I want to say back to them, oh, I love it. I find it like more or less restorative. Or it's like a, a been a huge and wonderful and surprising part of my life since The Middle Place came out and put me on the road that I like it. And then people often say, God, you must be so tired And I think it's really important that I disavow of that notion lest your vision of me become my vision of me by accident. Like I'm not tired. I'm okay. Like I'm totally fine. And I I don't want to stop working. I don't fantasize about stopping work. And often like my day ends at two o'clock and I like telling people that so that it's all getting mirrored back to me
1: as it feels to me rather than as it feels to them. One of the biggest things that I realized since I wrote The Happiness Project is when I started it, I really thought, well, I'll study the science, I'll study the philosophy, like, you know, I'll, I'll learn everything and then I'll come up with the best way and the right way and the, mo- uh-huh. you know, the most scientifically proven way to be happier. And what I realized is you can't do that. There is no one size fits all solution to happiness because we're all so different. And the idea that for one person, travel could be a big source of happiness and for someone else, it would be a major source of unhappiness. Or some people might love the opportunity to go stay in a hotel room. And for them, that would be just tremendously energizing and delightful. But it's like, only you can know. I mean, it's funny because people often say to me like, well, what is the best way to make your life happier? And then I'll say, oh, there's no one best way. You know, we all have to figure it out for ourselves. And then they'll say, sure, you know, sure. But, really, what is what's <laughs> the best way? And I say, "Well, what's the best way to cook an egg? Mhm And they say, "Well, it really depends on how you like to eat your eggs." And I say, "Right, there's no one right way to cook an egg because it depends on how you like your eggs, yeah, yeah. and there's no one right way to be happier. And I think this is something that's it's it's just very hard to grasp because if something makes us happy or unhappy or energized, or overwhelmed, or even just in terms of our sensational, you know, I wrote this book, Life in Five Senses, and I was just flabbergasted by how different everyone's sensory universe is. Like, we're all in our own universe. It feels like we're in the same place, but we're not. And it's just so hard to realize that the kinds of things that make one person happy don't necessarily work for someone else. Now you could say something like, well, relationships are a key to happiness. Absolutely, relationships are a key to happiness, but some people, like you love to go out and about and stay with friends and, and you know, meet a lot of people and you get a lot of energy. And some people maybe want like a handful of old friends that they see one-on-one and that's what recharges them. Totally. Um, and, and I think it's very easy to say to people, especially children, well, if this works for me, it will work for you you're doing it wrong or there's a better way. I did this with my children, just even the simplest thing of like how to do their work because I'm a person who needs a desk. I love a desk. I always work on a desk. I would have a desk in the bathroom if I could. I love a desk. <laughs> and my daughters just don't work at desks. And they'd work on their bed. They'd work on the floor. They'd, and I would just feel like, you can't concentrate like that. You got to go sit at a desk. And then I went to one of these big, uh, you know, like a WeWork, like a communal workplace. And I saw that they had furniture that was like, As if you were sitting on a single bed, essentially, except it was dressed up to look like office furniture, but you were sitting in the position that you would be sitting in if you were working on your bed. And I thought, this is a thing. (laughs) Lots of people work this way. Right. I can't work that way. I can't work on my lap in an airport while I'm waiting. Like, my laptop on my lap is just like, oh my gosh, that just crunches my brain into like a marble. But a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. But it's very easy to say, well, if it works for me, it'll work for you this is what I need, uh, so it must be what you need. Just yeah. like your mother saying like, just kind of not understanding like, oh, actually for you, it's fun and energizing and creatively stimulating. Whereas she's thinking, oh my gosh. That poor girl. How, yeah, that poor girl. It's also easy to think like, there's something wrong with me. Other people can do this fine. Why can't I do it? Why do they find it energizing and I find it draining? Why can one person do this, but I can't? There's something wrong with me. I need to change. I'm lazy. I'm not a grown up. It's like, no, probably there's a lot of people who feel the way you do.
2: Yeah, I really learned that with writing. Mm -hmm. Like I had this idea that I'm not a born writer. I'm a communicator, but I'm not a writer because I don't have the discipline. And then I was talking to Michael Chabon, (coughs) who won a Pulitzer for The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and has written, I'm sure, more than 10 novels that are widely respected. You know, he'll be read 100 years from now. And he said that he has to do this thing where he has some app that he can use to block him on his laptop from online activity. And the only, oh, yeah. the only way- freedom. that he, Yeah, freedom. And the only way to override it is to actually restart your computer. Mm-hmm. And he does it so often that the sound that Apple laptops make when they turn back on is to him the sound of failure. Because it means that he had to do it, Mm -hmm. that he couldn't take it, he couldn't control himself. And I was like, okay, so maybe the story that I've been telling myself that I'm not built for this, that I'm too easily distracted, that I work in these weird bursts instead of this very defined schedule means that I'm not meant to do this. And that's Mm -hmm. not true. And Mm -hmm. But that takes like a super strong ongoing conversation with yourself And it takes some resistance to what the culture is telling you is good and right. Because, oh oh my God, are there people out there, these influencers who are telling you, do this, not that, do this, not that, do this, not that. All day long, you're getting pushed around with this advice that is one size fits all. And then you think about like the cultural values of America and commercialism and body type and I mean, go down the list. Like we're in a dangerous context because the context is full of conviction about what is good and right and what you should and should not do. And a lot of times it's commercially motivated. And a lot of times it's gonna point you away from
1: what you and yourself have decided actually matter for you right and i think we just have these expectations of what things should look like and so it, we don't even really notice when we're different and uh, uh, like back to your point about the your work style A very kind of big distinction in work style, and this again is like a know yourself better question, is are you a marathoner or or a sprinter or a procrastinator? So when it comes to work pace, some people are like me, I'm a marathoner. So I like to start early. I like to work steadily. I don't like to work too hard at any one time. I don't like to be up against a deadline. I usually finish things early because I don't like to be up against a deadline but then there are sprinters and sprinters love the deadline they like the the adrenaline of the rush to the finish they like to work intensely if they start too early they kind of burn out they lose interest like they really get their best ideas right up against the right against the end i remember i got my insight into this cuz i was talking to a friend who was getting ready to give a big speech and I said, oh, have you been practicing your speech? And she said, oh no, I don't know what I'm gonna say until they're micing me up at the in the back. That's when I get my ideas. And I was like, whoa, I could not <laughs> live that way. But from the outside, a lot of times, marathoners or the sprinters themselves think they're procrastinating. Because procrastinators also work up against a deadline. But the thing about procrastinators is they're people who often it's because of anxiety. They're not starting, even though they know they should. And they're putting it off and they're putting it off. And it's only when the deadline becomes so overwhelming that they will start to work. And the way you know whether someone is a marathoner or a procrastinator is how do they feel about their work product? Because if they feel good about what they did, they're probably a sprinter because that's the way they like to work. And so they're proud of what they did. They like the process. They felt good about it. Procrastinators are often full of regret and they think, oh, I could have done better if I'd given myself more time. And so if you're a procrastinator, you want to say, okay, well, let me do things like, just do like one small step Just get started. You know, just open up a document and put a a headline. Just make one phone call. Just look up one, you know, site, get yourself started. But a sprinter, it's like maybe everybody around you is saying, Hey, it's come on. You got to get started. What are you doing? It's time. It's time. And you're like, you know what? I work when I work. When I have my ideas, that's when I have my ideas. And this is my way. And it's the right way for me. And realizing that that's a distinction that a lot of people have can help you understand yourself. I'm a total sprinter. Yeah, I mean that's what made me think of it because you're describing <laughs> a sprinter, which is you like that that adrenaline and that kind of that excitement and intensity.
2: I like the, the game. Outcome. I like the game. Like right at the end, it feels like a game where it's like, oh my god, what what is going to happen here? Like, and I can almost feel when I should be doing something and I'm not, and I'm old enough now to say, oh. I guess you're not ready. Like it'll Yeah. You'll yeah. you'll start to move when it's yes. when you're really ready. And when you start to move, you will have yes. most of your mind share. Whereas if you start right now, you're gonna be like working at 60% mind share. See? And you're gonna be drifty in your thinking. Yes. But yes. if you wait, you might get like 95% mind share where it's like you can't even hear the people in the next room, you forget to go to the bathroom. Like talk about falling into that flow state that's so delicious where you really are unaware of the world around you. And it's so rare. But I think maybe for me, I need to get all the way so I can see the deadline clearly in front of me. And I think, okay, it's
1: go time. Like, push. We'll see... This is a perfect example because I I would never work that way. One of the reasons I never became a journalist is that I cannot stand having a deadline. Mm. And so what you're describing just sounds awful to me, (laughs) but it clearly works really, really well for you. But you can see how it's really helpful to know about these distinctions. So like, let's say you and I have to work together and I'm dependent on you getting me some piece of information for me to do my work. So that's a conversation that we can have. Instead of me saying, you're doing it wrong, it's more like, well, I need this piece of it. How do we work on that? How do we get to a situation where we can both do work in our own way so that we have the circumstance that allows us to thrive, but that we can also work together instead of thinking that we all need to be on the same page or agree about what the right way is. It's whatever works for Kelly. It's whatever works for Gretchen. If we have to cooperate, then we need to work that out. But I think often people are sort of trying to convince everybody like, they're right. Like, I'm going to give you a little pep talk about why you should do things my way. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm never going to do things your way. Right, right, never. right. Don't waste never. the energy. Let's, no. <laughs> let's spend
2: all this time being honest yeah. about how we work and seeing how we can yeah. get that to a functional state.
1: Or in a family, why keep telling somebody they're doing it wrong? If, if it works for them, it works for them. That goes to this huge
2: takeaway that I've had in life which I phrased to myself as what is, as is, which is stop trying to change people. Because Mm -hmm. I think the impulse to edit one another Mm -hmm. is so strong and it's so foundational to so many conflicts, which is Mm -hmm. you're basically saying, don't be that way. Don't think like that. (laughs) Don't operate in that manner. And the sooner you can accept what is, as is, the sooner you can get to some sort of solution that incorporates people as they actually are. There's another way people sometimes say it, which is you shouldn't try to teach a pig to sing. It can't be done and it makes the pig angry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so arrogant to think that we can solve a person's problem by changing the way they are. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes to this larger great moment that I feel like we're in, which is that there's this seems to me a broader understanding of psychology and in particular behavioral psychology. And I sort of feel like from presidential elections to interpersonal conflict, he who understands behavioral psychology wins because we are only ourselves in the context of our psychology. Like that's what's driving us. And so if you try to operate outside of that understanding, then you get to the land of shoulds and should nots. And it's like, well, that's just a totally unproductive place. That It is not going to be as it should or should not be. It's going to be as it is. And so given that, now how do you want to proceed?
1: Well, I think that's with relationships. One thing that's really helpful is humor. If you can make it into a joke, if you can talk about it in a way where it's like, you're still getting to address something that's maybe like kind of this simmering conflict that, you know, it's always going to annoy you. Like my husband has this thing where he just doesn't answer questions. It's just, it sound, makes him sound like a real jerk, which he's not a real jerk. He's a, del- he's a wonderful and delightful person, but he doesn't answer questions. And that's really annoying. And I don't really understand why not. He's a questioner under my framework and they often don't like to answer questions. But but now it's it's just a joke. And, and I can be like, here you are not answering my questions. You're, you know, driving me bonkers. And but, so I can sort of talk about it in a way that is humorous, but acknowledges it. And that yeah. makes me feel better and it makes him feel better. And I think sometimes it helps us reach a better solution. Obviously this doesn't work sort of in the world, but it, in, I think in relationships, being able to talk about it with a lightheartedness and a levity can kind of reframe it so that you can broach it without it being very charged. Yeah. Because it can be very charged.
2: In our house, we say funny always wins.
1: Yes. Well, it does. (laughs) It's very effective. You get people's attention and you put them in a better mood and then everything is better. That's why I think sleep is so important. It's just if you don't have sleep, you're just cranky and then everything is worse. We all have a better sense of humor when we're well rested.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on my pod. This is like a conversation that's going up on both feeds, so it's kind of cool. So thanks a lot. And hi, everybody on the Gretchen Rubin side. And hello, everybody on your side. Yeah. And happy 15th anniversary to the Happiness Project. Oh, thank you. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Gretchen Rubin. Number one, whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel, it's always okay to say no. Number two, it is much easier to change your surroundings or your schedule than it is to change yourself. Number three, turning away from self and toward the world might just be the trick to real happiness. Number four, when it comes to the people you love, seek out low stakes, agendaless time. Number five, never let perfect be the enemy of the good. Number six, we have to work hard to reveal ourselves, even to ourselves. Number seven, keep your schedule aligned to your purpose. And number eight, it is easier to muster a sense of humor about the many ways that life is hard and weird and confounding when we are well-rested. Thank you, Gretchen Rubin. Thanks also to the team at Kelly Corrigan Wonders, our technical producer, Dean Kateri, and our executive producer, Tammy Stedman. Also, thanks to Rachel Hicks and Charlie Upchurch, who help us stay connected. And finally, thanks to you all for listening and sharing our show with your friends. We'll be back on Friday with another go-to and on Sunday with a new thanks for being here.
1: Hello, happier listeners. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between me and Kelly Corrigan. Onward and upward.
0: If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best?